Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Susan Ware, editor of the book American Women's Suffrage, Voices from the Long Struggle for the Vote, 1776 to 1965. Susan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you'd start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I I think the best introduction is that uh, I am a feminist historian and biographer, and I have been lucky for my entire career uh, to be involved in researching and writing and teaching about the history of American women, primarily in the 20th century. Uh, And I think one thing that drew me to the topic of women's suffrage was that uh, it opens out into so many of the themes and and, uh, issues in about American women and their political engagement. And there was this upcoming centennial, and I thought, (laughs) I want to be part of this. And the best way for me to do that is by diving into the um, scholar, into scholarship and, uh, and producing books. And so that is how I came to do this. And in many ways, I, I really think back uh, to when I first became a, a feminist in 1970. My first demonstration was at a rally for the 50th anniversary <laughs> of the vote, and here I am, 50 years later, uh, being very involved in the centennial. So in, in some ways, I've, I've come full circle. Uh, but I think one of my ongoing messages is that the work still continues, <laughs> and it will go on for long after <laughs> I stop talking about women's history and women's suffrage. What uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the the genesis of this project because Library of America is a, ha, has a very different uh, you know they're not a, an exclusively uh, his, uh, they don't focus upon documentary cl- collections exclusively they're they're you know have this mission if you will to produce texts and to keep them in print uh, when did they decide to uh, undertake this project and, and and how did how did it come about that. You know, and how did you go about accumulating the materials that you needed and, and selecting the materials that you wanted to include in a collection like this? Well, in, in some ways, it was just a lucky sense of timing when they reached out to me, which I think was in probably 2018, so just a couple of years before the centennial. And I had been working on uh, another book, a monograph, Uh, called Why They Marched, which was 19 biographical portraits of suffragists paired with 19 objects. Each essay starts with an object, and together they tell the entire history of women's suffrage, but through individual lives and individual objects. So having just finished the manuscript of that book, I had tons of material (laughs) that I had not been able to include in my book. Um, And there were so many other characters that that I could have included. I had been through all of the standard historiography. And so I really had a head start on this. And I think in retrospect, it was pretty lucky that the Library of America reached out to me and someone had recommended me as someone who knew the field and also had experience in editing and writing. And I remember when I got the email, I just 
read it and I and I thought, yes, and I even kind of did a little yelp because it was such a perfect match between the material, the extra material I had. I didn't feel like I had said everything I had to say about women's suffrage yet. Uh, and also I was very honored to be asked to be part of a Library of America volume. And so it all happened very quickly, uh, and I am so pleased with how it turned out. It is a beautiful book, um, just to hold it in my hands and see the color illustrations, and then just to realize that, again, by choosing just under 100 documents and then annotating them and 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 constructing this narrative that I really have given readers a um, comprehensive introduction to a very complicated history uh, and that that feels like quite an accomplishment <laughs> and I'm very proud of it. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon the selection process, because as you just mentioned, you have nearly 100 uh, selections in there, and yet the you know amount of material that you had to choose from was you know so enormous. And as you you know as you have in the book, it's not just the voices of women who are participating in the suffrage movement. You include a lot of outside commentators. You include a lot of critics. Uh, you, you you have the, this this very wide ranging coverage of the suffrage movement. What how did you uh, what sort of criteria did you establish for yourself in terms of what you wanted to include, and 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 how did you make that winnowing? How did you winnow it down to the final selection? Well, the winnowing down is is very hard, um, but the commitment to a broad array of sources was already there, and it came from the research and writing I had done for my monograph, Why They Marched, and I was committed there, and I was committed in the anthology, to going beyond just the standard women's history story. Not that most people even know that standard history, but that one focuses on a few key leaders, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, maybe Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman Catt and their national organizations. And that's only the tip of the iceberg in many ways. And so I was determined to cast my net much more widely. And I wanted to move away from national organizations. I wanted to move away from just the Northeast. So there's quite a lot of material about suffrage, the suffrage movement in the West and the South and the Midwest, I especially wanted to both move beyond and challenge um, the whiteness of the suffrage story as it's usually told. And so one of the things that is most distinctive about this anthology is that 13 of the documents uh, are by African-American activists. And that was a deliberate decision to include their voices in the story as a way, because in many ways the white suffragists had um, written them out of the story or neglected to include them in the first place. And it's also a way of foregrounding the racism of the movement, which is a a complicated topic, but one that has to be faced head on. And some people use the racism of the movement to say, well, they just dismiss the whole movement and it's not important. And that seems to me very short-sighted because then you erase the contributions of um, especially the vibrant African-American women's community that was involved in the suffrage movement and as part of a whole range of activities trying to improve conditions for African Americans in this country. And I found myself especially drawn to their vision of political activism because it wasn't just about gender, uh, because African American activists didn't have the luxury of thinking about 
what rights they were missing solely because of their sex. It was part of a much broader, complicated, intersecting um, oppressions. And for those who are listening to this who have taken feminist studies courses or women's studies courses, it's a much more intersectional vision that African-American suffragists have, which looks at the multiple overlapping oppressions that shape women's lives. Uh, And that was something I definitely wanted to document. And I had other things that I thought were important. Seems to me you can't tell the story of the suffrage movement, especially why it took so long, if you don't also document the anti-suffrage movement. I mean, they had a fair amount of success. And so I have probably more documents about anti-suffrage than one might think. Um, And I especially, I wanted to include men's roles. It isn't just a women's movement. Men were involved. Uh, And so I have several selections there. And then the other thing um, is I really didn't want to have the story bounded by the traditional chronology of starting the story in 1848 with Seneca Falls Convention and ending it on August 26, 1920, when the 19th Amendment is added to the Constitution. Because there are roots of that Seneca Falls Convention in anti-slavery and abolition and activism in the 1820s and 30s. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And the story doesn't end in 1920, because the question of voting rights is still incomplete for African-American women living in the South, for Native American women, for Chinese-American women. There are a whole range of groups that are not fully enfranchised by the amendment. So you have to keep the story going. And that's why I go as far as 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. Now, you have this large uh, you know, amount of material to, you know, this, you know, dozens of, of, of uh, documents in here. How did you go about organizing it in the book, and why did you make the choice for dividing it the way that you did? Well, um, I would say that when I, when I used to teach um, graduate students at NYU, uh, where I spent uh, almost a decade, I always told my students, chronology is your friend. And it's pretty good advice in terms of organizing dissertations or papers. And I really do believe that by using the chronology, the long chronology of this movement, because I'm really covering almost 200 years, that it allows a cumulative nature or notion of how the change is happening it also allows us to see changes over that long period. In many ways, where the book starts and where some of the early material from the 1820s and 30s, the activists are pursuing a much broader vision of women's rights and activism than at the turn of the century. So you see the kind of changes over time. And so uh, that that is why I decided to to do it chronologically. But maybe that's because I'm a historian. Maybe a literary scholar would have done it thematically. I don't know, marriage, <laughs> vote, something. But uh, there was never a, that was one of the easy decisions <laughs> in in putting together the book. Well, what I was struck by was how you did, in particular, was how you did your first section. Because as you pointed out, there's this traditional, you know, we, we start the women's suffrage, uh, ish, uh, you know, examination in 1848, we end it in 1920. You go back, you begin in 1776, and, and you take, you, you end that first era, if you will, of your examination in 1870. And, and I really like that because it, it does sort of shake a, a reader who might be, you know, familiar to a degree with, 
the 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 you know the history of, of women's suffrage out of sort of that complacent traditional narrative and to think about it a little bit differently and i was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about this period how you know the, why you framed it that way and and maybe a document or two that you find was particularly illustrative or uh, significant in terms of you know conveying that 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 approach or that concept towards viewing the history of women's suffrage during this period in that way well, I think one of the things that encouraged me to push the story back, the starting point, and of course no movement has one starting point. Um, I mean, obviously there's the wonderful Abigail Adams, Remember the Ladies, which is where I start. But women actually voted in New Jersey up until 1807. And that has to be part of the story. Uh, so you need to introduce that, and then again you need to look at the roots in the abolition movement. And the reason for stopping it in 1870 is, again, to just show how central this um, synergy between the question of the status of enslaved people and the status of women was before the Civil War during the Civil War, and then how it helps to fracture the movement in pretty dramatic and long-range, um, long-standing ways after the Civil War. And so that is the periodization that worked the best for me. Hmm. I was really fascinated, going back to that point that you made, about how it really was during that period, in, for much of it, a question not of women's suffrage for lives, women as a right, you know, exclusively, but as part of that larger question of women's rights, the right to control their own property, uh, the the right to a you know, independent status, uh, you know, you know, even though they're married, and how you have the documents, you would have these selections in which they would talk about these issues. Suffrage would be in there, but it would be one part of this broader issue that women are, are, are the, that these women are dealing with of this question of their status in this new republic. And I especially like the selections you chose, which referenced the moment that you're talking about this young republic, you're talking about this growing establishment of rights for various people. And yet, you know, these women who are saying, you know, you're leaving us out of this, and how you also capture the, the beginning of the, the effort to address that, how state legislatures start stepping up and, and, and acknowledging that, you know, some of these issues do need to be addressed. So it's not just a matter of you going from, you know, no rights to 1920. You're talking instead about more of a, a process from which women's suffrage emerges during this period. Yeah. Well, and I think that also you would, um, you had asked me earlier about, you know, some of the documents from that, uh, from that section. And, you know, I have to say that even though I don't like starting the story in 1848, if you sit down and reread or read for the first time the Seneca Falls Convention Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions, it covers everything. <laughs> I mean, it's done in 19th century language, but it's, it's precisely what you, you're talking about, this breadth of vision of attacking politics and religion and the legal system and family life, and it's all there. And it's, it's like an assault on patriarchy, although they didn't use that word. And I found myself very drawn to that document. Uh, one of my other projects is I've just finished a concise American women's history textbook, and we were trying to decide what to include in the appendix and had lots of options. And I said, let's just make a simple statement, and all we're going to put in the appendix is the Seneca Falls Convention Declaration of Sentiments and say this really lays it all out, and it does. <laughs> It, I also like how you, the, some of the documents that you've selected highlight the interrelationship between uh, the women, the the push for women's rights and the push for uh, the uh, of, of you know, of abolition. And I was thinking in particular of uh, Sarah Moore Grimke's uh, uh, letter uh, twelve 
where she's talking about the legal disabilities of women, where she makes that very powerful comparison where she says, you know, here are the, the laws for women, here are the laws that, that about slavery. What's the difference here? Because uh, we're, we're not really seeing it. Well, I think that the, it was sort of a consciousness-raising moment for white women like her. Uh, I would contrast that with one of my favorite documents from that section, which is the Francis Ellen Watkins Harper speech um, from 1866 after the Civil War, where she uses this wonderful phrase that comes out of her experience as an African-American activist, that we are all bound up together. Uh, And I think it goes on in one bundle of humanity, the sense of these issues being part of something larger in multiple uh, dimensions. But you know, it's it's a way that people are sort of pulling things out of other movements, making the connections and, and trying to build an ideology, forming networks, making alliances, breaking alliances. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Uh, but I think also one important point about that earlier period is, and the, it comes through in the contrast, not so much to part two, but by part three, the suffrage movement really is becoming a mass movement. And until about 1910, it isn't. It's taking place in church parlors and um, lecture halls, and people are debating it, but it's not on the tip of everybody's tongue. Uh, And, of course, what you have to do if you're trying to push a social movement or a social and political movement is you've got to push it to the top of the agenda and get people's attention. And one of the things that women suffragists had to do was they had to get the attention of men because it was going to be men who, as legislators uh, and politicians, were going and as voters were going to have to be convinced to change the laws so that women could vote. Uh, so there's just a lot that one can learn from their tactics and their changing ideology and their strategies about how social change actually happens and how hard it is and how long it takes and how incomplete the agenda is, which is just another way of saying that women's suffrage is not some dry, dusty topic from the past um, as we've found in the recent election we went through. Um, Voting rights are very much part of larger political struggles for women and for everyone. That that fluidity is something else I was really struck by as I was reading the the documents, which is how you, you talk about elements that, frankly, may not necessarily be, you know, the proudest moment of a, a rights movement. I was thinking, for example, of uh, the first uh, document you have in part three, where you have Bell Kearney, you know, making a very, you know, blatantly racist argument for that very reason you described, which she she's selling it to the white men who are in, in a, the position of making the determination whether or not women should get the vote. And she's basically making it a way that says, you know, this is how it benefits you. So this is why we should get it. And, and, and it's, and it's something that, you know, it, it, and you're, you're very blunt about it. You know, it's not exactly a, the, the finest hour, but it is, it does point to how, you know, the various, you know, tactics, you know, if, if this approach doesn't work, let's go with this one. Let's, because it's all, because it, it's ultimately about getting that end goal. Yeah. Well, there, there's an ugliness to some of the arguments that are made, both in terms of the anti-black statements, but also anti-immigrant. You know, there's a sense of why should the recent immigrant from Russia who doesn't speak English and and is poor, why should he be able to vote and a Wellesley-educated college woman not be able to? I mean, there's there's all kinds of prejudice on display. The, the most troubling, of course, to us is the, is the racism. Uh, and I knew that if I were going to do this anthology, of course that has to be documented. Um, documented, but also put in context. I'm not entirely sure that the women's suffrage leadership was all that more racist than the leaders of the populist party or 
the Progressive Party or the Republicans and the Democrats. This is this was what America was like. But what you do is you document it, you call it out, and then you counter it with evidence of how other marginalized groups like the African-American suffragists worked around it uh, and didn't let it just stop them. Uh, They continued to organize. And so to me, that is a very interesting story that was one that I very much wanted to have as part of the historical record. And I I like how you make it not just about the African-American women. You have some great selections there, but you also have uh, Alice Fletcher talking about the legal condition of Indian women. You have that very moving letter by Mary Tape where she's writing to the San Francisco Board of Education. And, and, you, and how it's interesting how they're, they're coming at it from you know, a, a lot of the same perspectives of, and, and, but you have that, that additional problem, which is, you know, that they face, which is that, you know, they're, they're a woman and they're, you know, part of this, you know, racial minority. And it's, you know, almost like a double whammy, and 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 it's in you know it. You can, they can't separate the two, and yet in some ways it's you know that 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 choice is there in in some ways of how do you approach this? Is, is this a question of of racism or is this a question of sexism? Well, and also when we include the story of Native American um, activism, uh, it gets even more complicated because of the way that um, Indians were treated by the government uh, as not being full citizens, uh, and that that was not necessarily even an aspiration uh, for many. And one of, one of the, you mentioned the Alice Fletcher article, and I, I always, I, I knew I wanted to include that because she, she is a white woman and an activist uh, on behalf of Native women, but she gives this talk where she basically says, hey, you know, when you think about it, uh, traditional Native communities, which were matrilineal and women had political power and resources were shared, that's a better situation for women. And by entering into the dominant American political system, Native women could end up being worse off. And she says that exact same thing, that exactly at the end. And so, again, it's a way of showing how a seemingly simple question, like who votes, is implicated in a range of things, like the larger struggle between tribal sovereignty and citizenship and the relationship of the United States government to uh, tribal entities. And um, I keep saying it's complicated. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's another one of the questions where then you want to keep the story going past 1920, because not until 1924, with the Indian Citizenship Act, uh, are all Native Americans considered citizens of the United States and therefore able, eligible to vote. Of course, in many states, there were still restrictions that kept them from exercising that right. Uh, but again, it's an ongoing story. One of the things that I, I was struck by in terms of what was uh, occurred across the various uh, sections was the counter-argument the, 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 that the opposition to women's suffrage offered, which is, you know, was based in this notion of a woman, uh, the, sort of a, uh, the, the ideal image or the ideal status of a woman. I was thinking in particular of how you have uh, the, the mocking passage in uh, from a uh, New York newspaper in the 1850s. You have George Vest's speech uh, in the Senate in uh, the 1880s. And then you have Grover Cleveland uh, writing in Ladies' Home Journal in, in 1906, and they're, they're they're all it all seems to be grounded in that same commonality, which is that you know you know what is a woman's place in society, what is a woman's place specifically in politics, and and how they they keep returning to the same 
you know, basic uh, uh, your rebuttal, which is that you know it, it would actually be more detrimental. Sort of the, the, the you know the argument for of, of perversity. You know that they would just it would actually achieve the counter result because women just are not suited to it. Yeah. Well, you gave examples of, I think, of three men: Grover Cleveland, who was no friend of women's <laughs> suffrage, nor was Woodrow Wilson, and Senator Vest, and some of the the coverage. The thing that's that kind of that makes sense. In in it's that's easy for people to grasp. Okay, men don't want to give up power, <laughs> so <laughs> they come up with this idea, or they they believe in this ideology that women really should stay home. What's much harder to explain are the many women who stood up and said, we don't want the vote. And this is, it's, it always came up when I go out on the suffrage hustings and been giving lectures about, about suffrage. People are just amazed and dumbfounded that women could oppose getting the vote. And again, it goes back to their own vision of their roles as being mainly grounded in um, in their families, and also a sense that men would protect them, men, the voters in the family. But really what it comes down to is what we sort of forget, which is what dirty business politics was <laughs> in the 19th century. I mean, where did people vote? They voted in saloons and bars. Copious amounts of alcohol were consumed on voting days. Votes were bought and sold by political machines. And frankly, I think it would have been, it was a stretch for a lot of women to even imagine themselves participating in that kind of rowdy um, public behavior. And so, their response is, no, we don't want to do that. But they are also saying something that I think we need to take more seriously, which is that their ideology, and this is mainly of the women anti-suffragists, is they believe that they can have more influence if they stay above partisan politics. And so instead of just doing the straight Republican or straight Democratic line, they're going to look at issues and they're going to try and affect change that way. And in many ways, that is the philosophy of the League of Women Voters, which is the direct outcome formed in 1920 of the mainstream suffrage organization. And the League of Women Voters has always been deliberately nonpartisan, committed to the study of issues. So I think you know, one of the things I tried to do was um, be able to convey in a way that was credible how certain women, um, mainly elite women, could have made a reasoned choice to be against giving women the vote. Having said that, I am pretty sure that after 1920 and when it's passed, that most of these anti-suffrage women probably bit the bullet and registered to vote and signed up and said, okay, well, <laughs> we're going to be involved. Um, but, you know, until that point, and remember, this struggle really comes down to one vote in Tennessee in August of 1920. It's never, the victory is never a done deal. And I think that one of the things I tried to convey, again, was this sense of, the barriers and the opposition, I mean, it's also always hard to get a constitutional amendment passed. Um, we know that. And, you know, and the other thing that I hope people recognize um, is just the parallels between the anti-suffragists and speaking out against the 19th Amendment and conservative women like uh, Phyllis Schlafly's Stop ERA movement uh, stopping the Equal Rights Amendment dead in its track in the, 18, in the 1970s uh, with a very similar <laughs> ideology that stressed women's traditional gender roles in home and family. So this is an important strand of the story, and it needs to be documented. And not only do you document it, you 
I think when you do so, you, you bring up this very interesting question that I see in a lot of the documents you've selected uh, from the women's uh, suffrage movement as well, which is this notion of what the vote would mean to the country. And I was thinking because and this is something that that uh, you, uh, you comes across most visibly in the criticism, but it's this concern about what will happen when you have the women's vote, which is, you know, it, 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 which is, we, it follows this, this trap that you see so often, in, I think, in American discourse, which is we, we assume this monolithic voting block. And then how it what fascinated me was how you find you, you demonstrate that that assumption exists on both sides. That, that once yeah. women get the vote, there would be, you know, you'd have the Democrats, you have Republicans, and then you'd have women. And, and all of a sudden, it, w- it would, you know, uh, affect this, you know, this revolutionary change. And it just, it's especially fascinating me because when you look back at when women did have the vote, you know, m- maybe as far back as New Jersey was not representative, but when you have, as you're, as you're charting in, in, in the second and, and especially the third section, as women are getting the vote at the state level, there's already evidence that's not how women are going to vote. And yet there's this assumption that, you know, that, that I think is, is underlying the, the resistance that you saw that about how it would be just too revolutionary of a change and nobody on, uh, on, in, anywhere really is prepared for what would happen, even though that's not how it turned out. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, I think it is clear. If people had opened their eyes and looked at what women as a group, well, they don't vote as a group. And you could see that in the Western states where women had been voting in some cases for, you know, four or five decades. And it's not as if they are voting to abolish war or get rid of prostitution or some of these issues. I mean, these are issues that many women care about, but they're not issues that, single issues that women often coalesce around to vote. Um, And yet, by being able to say, as they're trying to convince men who don't necessarily want to give them a vote, that by including women's voices in the larger political system, that there might be more attention to issues and concerns that women cared about, like schools and education and parks and recreation. I mean, these are traditional areas of concern for women, but they're important human areas of concern. And I think that the women really were, the suffragists were quite willing to make claims about how women would bring a special and different perspective to politics. And basically they could just look say, well, guys, you aren't doing such a great job. Um, you ought to let us uh, have, our, have our say. But in general, that is one of the, uh, it's not an irony, uh, but it's quite clear that there never was a women's vote and there probably never will be, although we do have a gender gap uh, that turns up in voting starting in 1980. Uh, but as you know, if we go back to the issue of anti-suffragists and suffragists, if women can't even agree on that, how could there ever be a women's vote? <laughs> That's why I really appreciate your inclusion of Annie Nathan Meyer's uh, piece, where she's talking about the, the women's assumption of, of sex superiority, how she's very prescient in terms of you know calling out this argument and saying, yeah, that's not how it's going to work out. <laughs> and it's actually going to become you know, fairly standard. Yeah, well, I think also her sister was a prominent suffragist, and I think that part of her um, joy in making arguments like that was sticking a needle in her sister. <laughs> so there are all kinds of things that go into how one ends up on one side of the suffrage divide or another. But again, I think it's a it shows that it's something that people are talking about. But again, it, when we've been talking about chronology pretty much all through, I really do think as a historian, and this sort of shapes how I write about the movement in general, is that there was a a quickening around 1909-1910 when the suffrage movement really becomes a mass movement, and it's when women take to the streets, they're having suffrage parades, they're doing pageants, then soon they'll be picketing the White House. And they make it a topic that is so in your face that you can't ignore it. 
uh, and you and they needed to do that in order to build the popular support uh, to to push them over the edge. And so, looking at how I chose documents, the, the most documents are in part three, I think, which covers 1900 to 1920, just. Uh, to be able to capture these new tactics. Uh, I love the description by Florence Luscombe about how brave she had to be to go out on a street corner or an open-air meeting and just start talking. And she has this wonderful line about, oh, and dogs were our great friends because any time a bunch of dogs gathered, then people would come and then they'd <laughs> listen to us. And it just made it personal in a way, but it also, that was a very important shift. The suffragists from the 1880s and 90s and the 1840s, they were not standing on street corners uh, or in public parks talking to whoever was there. Uh, this, is a, this is a new strategy. Uh, and then I think one of the things that I very much wanted to document was the, the importance of the split between Alice Paul and her more militant uh, National Women's Party and Carrie Chapman Catt and her more mainstream National American Women's Suffrage Association. And I am convinced that it was important to have both of these groups uh, rather than being detrimental to have two opposing groups. And I, but I did want to be able to document them. I think people are often just amazed when they read about the conditions in prison that suffragists were subjected to, where they were um, force-fed and they go on hunger strikes and they come out and they're weak. Uh, it's like, these are American citizens. This is happening to them. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't know that, and took a huge amount of courage. At the same time, you also needed people like Maudwood Park, who is keeping this card file of every member of Congress and where he stands on suffrage and what his wife thinks about it, and does he have any daughters, and then they just keep going back and do that kind of what they call front door lobbying in person because you you need that as well to get the amendment through the Congress so that it can be voted on. So you've got, again, documenting different ways of working towards political and, and social change. And I, I very much wanted to show as much as I could about the different tactics that were going on at that point. That concentration of documents, I think, also conveys something else, which is the the the, the, the sense of impending excitement. You know, the, the sense that they were, you know, on the cusp and that they were nearly there, and that you, you could it conveys something of that momentum that you describe. I, I think very nicely to have all that there. Point, it, it, you know, they can sense it. They they just you know know that they can just make that extra you know push. They'll get it, and then they do in 1920, of course. Yeah, and then but then the story doesn't end <laughs> because <laughs> not all women can vote, and that and women's rights are incomplete. And you know, I think that was one of the the main takeaways for me of working on this anthology and on my book Why They Marched, and being involved in a lot of the suffrage centennial activities is just the sense of how the suffrage story is part of a larger continuum of women's political activism that goes, that starts before the suffrage movement, and it definitely continues after 1920, and it's ongoing now. Uh, and so I, I do see this as part of something larger. Uh, and I think that, as I mentioned earlier, having the centennial coincide with a um, fraught and harshly contested presidential election with a lot at stake reinforced the importance of what the women had been 
fighting for the vote because voting is important. Not everything, um, but it is important. And it audiences were very found it very easy to make those connections. Um, and you know, it's not like we want to have some reductive. That was then, and it's a direct line to now. But I think in terms of giving people a history that resonates, that stands on its own, that represents what happened, but also can be put in dialogue with the world that we live in, is a goal that I think many historians and also the folks at the Library of America um, subscribe to. I thought the selection of yours that best made that point was uh, Ida Tarbell's, because it, it, it's it's fascinating to, to to you know have read you know near uh, over 550 pages of the campaign for it, the the expectations, the the, the hopes of, of what a women's vote would bring, and then you have her uh, selection is women's suffrage a failure. She's writing barely four years after the passage of the 19th Amendment, and there's already the sense of you know, okay, where, where is the, you know, ha, has it really, you know, ha, you know, what have we really gained from this? And it, it does underscore in it the, the sense that, you know, it, it, that it's just yet another step and, and that it wasn't as though, you know, the utopia came the moment that, you know, that one legislator in Tennessee, you know, made his decision to vote, uh, to vote I. Yeah, but it's, I think the Ida Tarbell piece is even more significant in that she was one of the most prominent anti-suffragists. And of course, remember how well known she was for her muckraking books about Standard Oil. And so when she came out against suffrage, that was a big deal. And I was quite taken by the fact that just four years after the vote, and she goes out and looks around and she has a much more positive view. I mean, again, it's incomplete. Uh, there's still much more to be done, but she certainly is not questioning the fact that women now have the vote and they are using it. And then uh, for me, I paired that mentally with when I reached uh, the, the section from the, the selection from Eleanor Roosevelt, where she does point out, you know, this is what we have gained. Yes, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, these other things. We should work towards those, but we've we have made progress, and a lot of it's because we you know we now have the vote. Yeah, and I mean, one reason I included that section from the, you know, their 1940 series on women in politics was it is just like it's a laundry list of all of the positions that women held, that they were elected to, that they were appointed to, and it really shows that women didn't just go back to sleep after 1920 and not do anything, that their political activism continued. It just what was different was it wasn't all concentrating on a single goal. It dispersed, and that's, that's the more normal uh, way of operating. But I thought it was just a good, as, as much as any other document, of showing that women really did make a difference to uh, the, in the interwar period uh, after 1920 to politics. And for me, it was also a nice kind of homecoming because I started my career, uh, my dissertation was on a network of women in the New Deal, including Eleanor Roosevelt and Frances Perkins and many of the women that were mentioned there. And um, I called my first book Beyond Suffrage. And <laughs> little did I know that then I would be returning later and putting it in that larger context. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask, is there a particular uh, selection that we uh, haven't discussed or that maybe you want to return to that is uh, perhaps your most favorite or uh, one that you might, uh, that you feel is like, was a, a real discovery for you when you were doing this? And, and is there also uh, something that you had to leave out that uh, for, for, you know, whatever logistical practical considerations that, uh, you know, that uh, might've been nice to, to, to have included under uh, if circumstances had been a little different than they are? Well, I, I can answer the second part first and say that if I didn't include something 
and it didn't make it in the book, it has long been crowded out of my mind. <laughs> I won't be able to remember what it was that was going to be number 99, and it didn't make the cut. Um, but I, I do have one. It's not necessarily my favorite, but it's the one that, I mean, I've been studying suffrage history and women's history for a long time, so it takes, it takes a lot for there to be something really, a new take on something for me. And it was realizing that the sinking of the Titanic in 1912 got drawn into the suffrage fight. And you think, what in the world does the Titanic have to do with women's suffrage? And each side, the antis and the pro-suffrage, used it as an example, and the anti-suffragists said, oh, this is what we, we say, men will protect us, women and children first, you know, in terms of getting into the lifeboats. Men will take care of us. Uh, this is why we don't need the vote. And then the suffragists say, what's with this women and children first thing? <laughs> we want women to be treated as human beings, as equals, uh, and that is why they need the vote. So even a terrible tragedy by 1912 can get recast or drawn into the suffrage story on both sides with people deploying it. Uh, and to me, that just suggested how central it had become. And also, I just thought it was, it just made me smile. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I think that's a hard question for <laughs> writers. Uh, I I think just the way that my anthology doesn't end in 1920, I don't think I'm done with suffrage, and it will continue beyond. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what. Um, but I do. I have also been working on a women's history textbook, which will be out in July. And that was a fun excuse to sort of survey all of women's and gender and sexuality history. Uh, and so it gave me a lot of ideas of things to pursue. But as we all know, this is a very strange time to be trying to incubate new ideas because we are all stuck at home and the archives are closed and um, we don't really know what's ahead. But uh, I think that I'm I've learned over the years to trust myself and my instincts, and I have some things that are tickling my fancy, and I just know that I should follow those uh, instincts and see where they lead me. And when they do, in three, five years you can invite me back on this podcast and I will tell you about it. I do look forward to that opportunity. Uh, Susan Ware, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for having me.